The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. How it starts. How do you get a pilot going? Well, in the old days, it started with a hand crank. Stop tittering in the back, Nielsen. It's true. Before the days before automatic methods, starting an aircraft engine relied on a brave man who was paid by the week, usually a few notes in a brown envelope, and often sporting a large moustache and a grubby set of overalls. In the military, the wearing of empire-building shorts with long socks and a pith helmet was obligatory. In order for hand-starting to work, the propeller had to be attached so that our poorly paid mechanic could turn the engine over top dead centre when the prop was more or less horizontal, since that was when the engine would fire and start. For those not familiar with the workings of a reciprocating internal combustion engine, top dead centre refers to the position of the piston when it's at the highest of its movement within the cylinder. Sparking plugs were usually fed their ignition pulse just before top dead centre, the most efficient point. But during a swing start, this could easily result in a kickback that might end in a few flying finger ends. In order to prevent too many digits disappearing, aircraft engines were fitted with an impulse coupling. This spring-driven device increased the speed of the magneto for a stronger spark and delayed the spark an appropriate amount of time to give easy starting. As an aside, the kickback of a piston engine is all too well known to those who had a motorbike with a kickstarter, like my Tiger Cub, or a hand crank, like my Austin A40. Despite this, as engine size increased, it became harder to swing a prop often requiring two beefy chaps to hold hands and coax an aircraft into life, singing that famous prop swingers song, Ring Around the Roses. Enter the Huck Starter. A device invented by Captain Bentfield Hux of the Royal Flying Corps, it was brought into service just as the First World War ended. Based on the chassis of a Ford Model T truck, When suitably disengaged from the wheels, it used the truck's engine to turn a long chain connected to a metal shaft supported on a gantry. The metal shaft could be manoeuvred into place, so it engaged with a claw clutch mounted on the propeller boss. When fired up, the shaft would turn the aircraft's propeller, and when the aircraft engine ran faster than the huck starter, the clutch would be forced to disengage. Very soon, Huck starters could be found all over the world, but particularly in the British Commonwealth countries and the United States. They were superseded by internal starters, but remained in use with the Soviet Air Force during World War II for such aircraft as the Aleutian IL-2. They're fairly rare now, but one is in frequent use at the Shuttleworth Collection at Old Warden to start their well-preserved Hawker Hind biplane. I mustn't forget to mention that a common type of hand swing involved wrapping a rope around the propeller shaft and pulling that to turn the engine over. This kept folk out of harm's way unless they were foolish enough to take a turn or two of rope around their hand to improve their grip, and then the engine kicked back or the rope became tangled in the prop, dragging them into the danger zone. 
Pull cords are actually still used in some early motor gliders, such as the Slingsby Falk, and can be pulled from the cockpit. The 1930s bought more bang for your buck as cartridge starters were becoming commonplace, the best known of which is the Kaufman starter. Such starters had been around for a while as getting very large engines going was difficult without some strong motive power. On aircraft, they had the advantage of being simple and lightweight, and a number of engines used this method. It involved firing a large blank cartridge and then using the expansion of hot gases developed by the burning cordite. They could either be ducted straight into the engine cylinders to force them down, or alternatively fired into a separate cylinder and piston arrangement that would crank the engine through a geared starter ring. The primary disadvantage of the Kaufman starter was the need to keep a supply of cartridges handy, although some starters resembled a revolver with five chambers that would cycle round after each use, presenting a new cartridge for the next time. Smaller engines could use a blank shotgun cartridge, but bigger ones needed something that resembled an artillery shell. This type of device survived mainly in the military well into the jet age and were used on such engines as the Rolls-Royce Avon and the Hawk Hunter and the English Electric Canberra. I remember that the Canberra's large brass used cartridges were prized possessions and when at following civilian airfields they were often required to bribe the refuelers to get prompt or even any service. They were certainly in use when I started training, as the venerable de Havilland Chipmunk T-10 employed them to get the engine going. I remember well the metal ring attached to the firing wire that we had to pull to get the thing going. Its use was followed by an inevitable loud bang and cloud of black smoke that cleared once the venerable inverted Gypsy Major rattled its way into life. The noise and vibration always managed to shake the after-start checklist right out of my head as I sat there on my uncomfortable parachute, wondering what the devil to do next. As an alternative to smoky pyrotechnics, some engines used a gas-starting system that ducted high-pressure air from ground units into the engine. One such technique was used by the 1922 Bristol Jupiter engine, which powered the Bristol Bulldog, Gloucester Gamecock and over 120 other aircraft. Compressed air would be directed into the cylinders through a distribution circuit via non-return valves to turn the big nine-cylinder radial engine over until it started. Complexity, weight and the need for a supply of air cylinders made this far from perfect. Perhaps the inertia starter would be the answer to designers' prayers. For Willie Messerschmitt, it certainly was, as he used one to start the big Daimler-Benz V12 engine in the BF-109 World War II fighter. The main component of the inertia starter is a big flywheel, on the side of the engine that is either cranked by a willing volunteer or, in some cases, a willing electric motor until it has enough kinetic energy stored in it to transfer to the engine. When the flywheel is engaged, 
It should have enough momentum to turn the engine over through a reduction gear until it hopefully starts. The great advantage of this system is that it doesn't need external equipment. The downside is that to have the inertia needed to start a big engine, it must have a lot of mass, extra weight, that you don't really want to fly around with all the time. As aircraft became more sophisticated, manufacturers began to fit them with electrical systems. Initially, they were just simple generators driven by a propeller in the slipstream and used to charge a small battery. They weren't powerful enough to drive a starter motor. But eventually, the convenience outweighed the additional weight and complexity, in particular on aircraft like flying boats. The high engine position and inconvenience of a waterborne aircraft made hand-starting an impossibility, and the only practical solution was an electric starter. Such starters have been around in cars since 1896, when an English engineer first fitted one to an East Peckham-built Arnold, an adaption of the Benz Velo. Although early aircraft electrical systems weren't able to give the power needed for an electric start, the alternative was to use an external supply for starting. Early aircraft electrical generators were low voltage, but with more powerful engines, uprated ones could be attached to raise the system voltage to 12 or even 24 volts. In most cases, there were separate starter motors and generators, but in other designs, the starter remained permanently engaged, switching its role from starter to generator once the engine was running by using a second series of windings. The jet age presented a different series of problems for engineers, but perhaps surprisingly, the solutions to getting your jet engine wound up were similar. For a gas turbine engine to start, the compressor stages needed to be rotated to generate airflow through the engine. When they'd reached a sufficient speed, fuel was introduced to the burner section and ignited by spark plugs. As pressure built up in the flame tubes, it sought the easiest way out of the engine through the turbine section, which powered the compressors. The starter would have to stay engaged until the engine had reached self-sustaining RPM. The simplest way to start a jet engine was to blow compressed air through the front, but that wasn't ever going to be a practical long-term solution. All that was needed was for the compressor to be spun up to a sufficiently high speed so it could draw enough air in itself. This could be achieved by a drive shaft, connected to the main shaft of the engine. Now all that was needed was a way to turn that drive shaft. There are, of course, many ways to skin a cat, and all of them have been tried with gas turbine engines. A favoured method for small gas turbines, such as in cruise missiles and turboshaft engines used on some helicopters, is using a geared hydraulic motor, powered by oil pressure from a ground unit. Kaufman cartridge starters worked well on gas turbines, but mainly on military aircraft, as civilian operators balked at the expense and inconvenience of flying around with a supply of big cartridges. 
The Avpin starter was one that gained favour as a way of firing up the Rolls-Royce Avon fitted to the Hunter and Lightning. This evil fluid, otherwise known as isopropyl nitrate, is a colourless liquid monopropellant with a near-invisible flame. It doubles as rocket fuel and has a flash point of only 22.2 degrees centigrade, so must be handled with care and is classed as a low-sensitivity explosive. The reason that it was considered a suitable way to start a military fighter was that it could effect a near-instantaneous, simultaneous start of two engines, ideal for a fighter being scrambled. It was stored in a small tank in the spine of the aircraft, and on starting, a measured amount would be injected into a chamber, ignited, and the resulting hot gases directed through a turbine, which then turned the engine. Care had to be taken not to climb anywhere near the starter exhaust. Avpin also gave off pungent fumes that could clear a blocked sinus at a hundred paces and would easily have doubled as a CS gas replacement. There are many stories about its use in the RAF, including when a line mechanic thought it might make a good alternative to conventional lighter fluid. What happened to him on the next smoke break was never recorded. Although using compressed air through the intake was not a great way to start a jet engine, Air directed into a gear turbine is, nowadays, the preferred method. The air comes from a variety of sources, but generally from either a ground supply or a unit housed in the aircraft. These units are known by various names, including the auxiliary power unit, jet fuel starter, air start unit, or gas turbine compressor. They are little gas turbine engines in their own right, which gives rise to the question of how they are started. Is there a smaller engine that starts the APU, and then an even smaller one to start the one that starts the APU that starts the main engine like a row of little Russian dolls? On modern airliners, the APU has other functions as well, such as powering the air conditioning system, the hydraulics, and the electrical systems as well. However, jet engines haven't always been started that way. The Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird used a pair of Buick Nailhead V8 engines mounted on a trolley to crank their Pratt & Whitney J-58 turbojets, although Wildcat V8s and big block Chevy V8s were used as well. Not the first to do this, Early German gas turbine engines such as the BMW 003 and the Juno 004 were cranked by a flat twin two-stroke piston engine attached to the front and hidden in the intake, which itself was started by a manual pull handle attached to a D-ring. So we've almost turned a complete circle with hand crank engines starting jet engines. I'm sure there are a few more out there, but whatever method you use to get yourself going, please take care and try not to lose any digits.
Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you enjoy it, you'd help us along by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening. Thank you.